0: This is Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. Delia Cologne moved to Florida from Cleveland in 2005, and she says it took her a while to appreciate the fruits, vegetables, and herbs that the Sunshine State has to offer. She writes in the introduction to her new cookbook that one of her first impressions of the Sunshine State was it was just too hot to eat here. The last two decades have been a culinary journey for Delia. She became a vegetarian in 2013, and she hosts The Zest, WUSF's podcast showcasing Florida's food, foodies, restaurants, and recipes. The ninth season of The Zest is streaming now, and a new book, The Florida Vegetarian Cookbook, comes out next month. Delia, thanks for joining us, and congratulations on the cookbook. Thank you so much. So we'll talk about this cookbook in a bit, but first, let's talk about The Zest. Now, For people who maybe haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, while food is the star, this is not a cooking show. There's a whole lot more to it. So what's your elevator pitch about this podcast and what it is?
1: So the intro that I say for every episode is citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. So you're absolutely right, Matt. There are a million blogs and Instagram accounts and TikToks and cookbooks where you can find recipes. You don't necessarily turn to a podcast for a recipe but a podcast is an opportunity to have a longer conversation because food is about so much more than just what's on the plate it's about our history and our community and you put your soul on the plate and so it's really just a window to talk about so many other things because we all eat Mm
0: -hmm. now in one episode you talk to an african-american cattle rancher named huey howard he's 87 years old he's been raising cattle in rural hendry county for more than five decades Now, you visited Howard and his nephew on a sweltering afternoon at the family ranch east of Fort Myers. He said when he started ranching, a white friend bought a pasture on his behalf, and that's because no one would sell land to him. Now he owns 1,600 acres and leases more than 5,000. Let's take a listen.
1: You're a living legend. You're a living legend. So what are you, I mean, just thinking about how few black people there are in this industry in Florida, what is your hope? my hope is just we just live as long as we can you know I, i'm speaking of me okay yeah i like to help people i'm really good to my help and i i really i enjoy helping people
0: mm-hmm. if
1: there's any way i can help a person i'll be glad to do it because i'm i just love to do it okay. I, I feel i feel like the good lord is so good to me for me to own all the stuff i own and still being able to get up and go, I feel like I can, I can help somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> Have you thought about retiring? Mm-hmm. I thought about it, but let me tell you now, okay? The first morning I wake up and can't get out of bed, I'm gonna retire. Up until the end, I ain't gonna retire. So you've got a long time <laughs> left. I hope so.
0: Well, Delia, as we heard in that clip, there, there aren't a lot of African-American ranchers. I mean, tell us about this experience of meeting Huey and, and hearing about his life as a rancher.
1: Oh, man. First of all, I just love his voice. And he looks exactly the way he sounds. He's got the the cowboy hat and the belt buckle. We were actually sitting in his truck because it was air-conditioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got the plaid shirt. So driving down to Felda, it's in the Fort Myers area. Um... It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. He actually parked his truck on a corner so that I could find him, and then he led me in my car back to the family ranch. So it's almost like entering a time capsule, you know? This is a family that makes their living on beef, And you've probably had a burger, I don't eat burgers, but you probably have had a burger that came from one of his cows. There's a good chance if you live in Southwest Florida. Mm -hmm. So it was just really special. And then his nephew Gerald was there, who's probably 50s or 60s, who's helping with Huey's sons to keep the family tradition of cattle ranching going. Mm
0: -hmm. Ranching is such a big part of Florida's identity. Why is it important to seek out and highlight the diversities and stories like this about Florida's food and food culture?
1: I think on the surface, when people think of food in Florida, they think of grouper sandwiches and key lime pie and Cuban sandwiches. And those are all great. We've done episodes on all of those foods, but it's so much more. Florida is such a diverse place to live. I mean, when you think of Florida, what do you even think of? Do you think of Disney World? Do you think of a uh, cow pasture? Do you think of Miami? Like even wrapping your mind around what Florida is, is just so difficult. So over these nine seasons of the zest, we've been fortunate to just take a little slice. And that's something you can do on a podcast. Instead of just going wide, we can go a little bit deeper mm-hmm. um, and tell the story in Huey's own rich, deep voice of of his experience from being a cattle rancher from the 1950s all the way to today.
0: Now, one of the guests on your podcast was just here in Tampa Bay recently for the Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival, Adrian Miller, a.k.a. the Soul Food Scholar. He's a food writer, attorney, barbecue judge. Uh, His books include The United States of Barbecue and others. He's kind of a polymath. Now, you... Talk to Miller about the overlap between soul food and Southern food. What's the difference between those two things?
1: Oh, man, I wish he was here to explain it because he's so much smarter than I am. He's got a James Beard Award or maybe two. But he would say there is some overlap. Soul food is Southern, but not all Southern food is soul food because soul food is what happened to Southern food when it traveled throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. So how it evolved, how fried chicken evolved from down here to, you know, maybe Milwaukee or Cleveland or Boston or New York or some of these other places. And how there's a lot of influences with soul food because you've Mm -hmm. got the Southern, but you've also got West African. And then you have just the practicality of living in a city. So in, in New York City, people don't have chickens in their backyard that they can butcher. So what does that look like? You know, um, and it's constantly evolving. Now, a lot of soul food is vegan. Mm-hmm. People aren't putting ham hocks in their greens all the time anymore, especially at restaurants, because they want them to appeal to people like me, uh, who maybe are more plant based. And so there are a lot of vegan uh, iterations of soul food.
0: He kind of writes and and talks about the changing status of soul food too, right? I mean, how is it perceived these days? Is it kind of more seen as could be high cuisine or or does it still have that sort of, um, you know, it's kind of more true to its roots?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. I was just at a wedding out of town last weekend and I went to a soul food restaurant and there were these two older black women sitting behind the counter uh, cleaning collard greens. I asked, do you have any collard greens? They said, no, we won't have them ready till tomorrow because that's how long it takes to make them the traditional way. But I've got friends like Boizel Hosey, co-founder of the Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival, who makes them in a pressure cooker Mm -hmm. in like 30 minutes. So soul food is is as varied as the people who enjoy it, who aren't just African-Americans. I mean, it can be for everybody.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of barbecue, one of your episodes delves into the origins of barbecue in Florida. It starts with the Spanish bringing pigs to the Americas. Here's historian Kevin Cokemore talking about what might have been on the table at the first Thanksgiving in Florida. Now, if you're talking about what the Spaniards would have brought, they had just been on a ship for six months. So what they would have brought is dried beans, dried pork. They would have made what we would call Spanish bean soup down in Tampa would probably be the first Thanksgiving. Wine, they would have drank a lot of wine because they would have had mass. They would have ate biscuits. So it would have been very different. It would have been like not something that you would have assumed would have been a Thanksgiving feast. But that should replace the Thanksgiving that they think of as the first Thanksgiving. Now, one of the things that I found kind of fascinating about this episode is – Cocomor, his description of pigs, he kind of he describes them as these beautiful machines of ecological destruction. He says they reproduce like the plague and they can live on anything, and that's why the Spanish brought them along as a food source. Uh, I wonder what you were kind of thinking as you went through this conversation. Though, what what surprised you about um, I suppose how far back the history of barbecue goes in Florida?
1: Mm, good question. I was surprised, and maybe I shouldn't have been I was surprised at how thoughtful the Spanish were in what they chose to bring on board because imagine you're coming to a new land you know we can talk about why and whether they should have been there at all but they were coming to a new land and you have limited space on board and they said we're gonna bring pigs because as you said they reproduce like crazy Uh, we will have a constant food supply and they also brought garlic I don't think he mentioned that but thank God Mm -hmm. they did because can you imagine life without garlic Um, and To this day, I live in Riverview and there are wild hogs in my neighborhood that you Mm -hmm. have to watch out for or you'll hit them with your car. You know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, those Spanish. This is all their fault. (laughs) (laughs) But um, they combined their pork with some of the barbecue techniques of the uh, indigenous people here. um, And that gave us what we now know as, you know, barbecued pork and pulled pork and things like that. Mm -hmm. So even as a vegetarian, I can appreciate all of this, because this all contributes to the culture you see today, and it helps us understand when there's a literally a guy on my corner, we call him the barbecue man, he sells barbecue on the weekends. And if it weren't for the Spanish and the indigenous people and the West Africans 500 years ago, he wouldn't be on that corner today.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, for a slightly more contemporary take on barbecue, um, let's talk about your series Couples in the Kitchen. This is about couples who make their living in the food business and let's listen to Stephanie Swans, who's founder of Emper Mamas, and her fiancé, Felix Baba Flores, founder of Wicked Oak Barbecue.
1: Yeah, I'm a barbecue enthusiast. I love barbecue. And nine times out of 10, like, oh, yeah, you know, my grandfather owned this place. It's generation to generation. And no, not for me. Mine's uh, YouTube and TV shows and wow. cookbooks. So, so you're yeah. the the patriarch, and then maybe your child will pick it up. How old is your child oh, now? I got a 10-year-old daughter. Oh. and sh- I mean, she loves being there. She loves helping out, but hopefully she can just run it and not have to barbecue when we get to that level. <laughs> and so I'd hate to throw her into that mix. It's, yeah. it's a lot of work. What's Barbie. her name? Uh, her name is Jordan. Jordan. Oh, yep. nice. Stephanie, what about you? How did you get into this whole empire? I went into this business because I wanted to be a business owner. I wanted to be in business for myself because I was sick and tired of working for somebody else. I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired and was ready to do my thing and I quit my job moved home back to Tampa and the next thing you know I was interested in the food truck scene
0: so um tell me a little more about this this couple and the and the, the way they approach their food businesses
1: so this is part of our February series that we're doing in honor of Valentine's Day, uh, Couples in the Kitchen. So we've got couples who are in the food business. We've got home cooks and influencers and just, you know, food tells us so much about people. And mm-hmm. we thought it would be fun to see how they relate to each other. I mean, Stephanie and Bubba are like this power couple because she's got Empamama's, which is a very popular eatery inside Armature Works Food Hall. It's and great then name, too. Oh, perfect name. And then she said her her drunk friend came up with it. She was like, (laughs) I'm using that. (laughs) And then Bubba has Wicked Oak Barbecue in Seminole Heights. And so different, you know, types of cuisine, but they have put their resources together. And we actually spoke at their uh, office headquarters near downtown Tampa. Um, And so they're able to help each other. He says that he's more hands on and she's got the business mind And so it's really cool to see. And then, of course, I ask them, you know, what do you eat and what do you Mm -hmm. feed Jordan? And they're like, oh, you don't want to know. It's a lot of takeout and it's like the cobbler's children have no shoes.
0: I found that interesting, right? Because I'm wondering how often you find that in the chefs and other kind of people in the food business you talk to, because it sounds like they just don't have time to cook essentially for themselves.
1: I know. Another couple we interviewed were uh, Melissa Santel and Bryce Bonsack. Melissa is several things, but she's a food photographer and the host of the podcast Sunday Sauce. And then Bryce is the chef owner of Roca Italian Restaurant, which is a Michelin starred restaurant in Tampa Heights. And he said that before they met, his fridge was just full of like Taco Bell. <laughs> I know it's, it's really sad. But he said for him, cooking is all about feeding other people. Mm-hmm. And so if it's just for myself, what's the point? Yeah. You know, and so it is interesting. But we do have a lot of chefs who who get a little extra with it. Like, you know, in, in the radio and podcasting business, as a um, an audio test question, we'll ask a lot of times, would you have for breakfast? Mm-hmm. And some people just say coffee or nothing or cereal. But some of these chefs are like, well, I had a three egg omelet with uh, <laughs> cheese that I made myself from the goats in my backyard and herbs from my garden. So I love that they're doing it for themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. You also delve into the history of drinks as well as Food on the Zest, and you've got episodes on Prohibition in Florida. You took a tour as well of Bastet Brewing, uh, which pays homage to the beer's Egyptian roots, and was also featured in a documentary about black-owned breweries. Let's just take a listen.
1: What's unique about Bastet? Because did Tampa really need another brewery?
0: I don't know if they need another brewery, but they definitely needed a Bastet. What's different about us is we're super unique. We use local ingredient when we can. We've used stuff from like pomelos from Dade City, strawberries from Plant City, but we also use rare and unique ingredient. Uh, Tom and I are both really into food. We're really good cooks at home. Um, we're essentially foodies and we treat our recipe development like that. You know, you eat around the world, why can't you drink around the world, right? So we've put obscure stuff in beers such as like saffron, and we have a really popular one here with the ube yam, purple yam. Mm. We have Tom's brainchild Apache, which is very common in Mexico. We've done fermented lemonade called Tima from Finland. So we're inspired by a lot of things around the world and just culture in general. I think that's what's kind of sets us apart. And we're also friends of the history of beer, which is why we have the Egyptian theme. Dalia, these sound like a, a real couple of beer nerds. What did you learn about beer on your visit to the brewery?
1: I learned a lot because I'm not a big beer drinker. Um, yeah, so it's some of the audio you heard in the background is we were actually in the uh, brewery where mm-hmm. the magic happens. And so uh, Houston Lett and Tom Ross worked together at a law firm, and they were always brewing beer on the side and bringing it in for their co-workers to taste. And then they, during the pandemic, they just said, you know what, let's go for it. And so they quit their jobs. And now they own this uh, watering hole near Ebor City off of uh, Route 60 in Tampa. Um, I didn't know that beer had Egyptian roots, honestly. And uh, it's interesting because Houston was a graphic designer at the law firm. And so he's designed these really cool t-shirts. And actually, that's what caught our attention initially. Uh, My colleague, Alexandria Ebron, who also works on The Zest, and I attended a fundraiser at Tampa Theater. And they had all different beer tastings and food tastings and we saw these guys wearing these cool t-shirts with cats on them. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that Houston designed them. And so the Egyptian theme and Bastet was like a cat woman, part feline, part human in Egyptian uh, mythology. And they weave that theme throughout. And just some of the beers, it turns out, like he said, you eat around the world. Why can't you drink around the world? They're both Mm -hmm. foodies. And so putting things like sweet potato into beer, I just thought was really cool. I didn't even particularly like beer, to be honest. I don't necessarily like everything we talk about. Um, But that was a good time. Who doesn't want to get a beer tasting at like 9 a.m.? Why not?
0: (laughs) You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with Dalia Cologne, host of The Zest and cookbook author. When we come back, we'll ask about Dalia's Florida Vegetarian Cookbook, which is in bookstores next month. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking with Dalia Cologne, host of the Zest podcast from WUSF and author of the Florida Vegetarian Cookbook, which is in bookstores next month. Dalia, what was the inspiration for the cookbook and how does it feel to have that completed?
1: I can't believe it's finally done. It's like my pandemic baby. So I've been a vegetarian for over a decade. I watched a documentary and I went cold turkey, as they say. And then during the pandemic, I was approached by a publishing company, University Press of Florida. And they said, oh, were you interested in writing a cookbook? And they asked, what ideas do you have for the cookbook? And we tossed around a few. But um, eating vegetarian food is very close to my heart. And obviously, a lot of people are leaning into that about 5% of the US population is vegetarian or vegan. So about 4% vegetarian, meaning no meat, and then about 1% vegan, meaning no animal products at all. So cheese, milk, yogurt, even honey. Mm -hmm. So this was just an opportunity to show how wonderful this food can be. It's not just the veggie burger at the barbecue that nobody wants to touch. It's like you actually have to bring extra now because even the meat eaters will enjoy a lot of this food.
0: You've got a lot of tips in this book for people who might be interested in eating vegetarian. A couple of the tips that caught my eye are go nuts and go global. Can you tell our listeners what's worked for you when it comes to um, being vegetarian?
1: Well, people always ask, where do you get your protein? Mm -hmm. And if you Google it, there are a million places, but one of my favorites are nuts. I mean, think of all the different types of nuts and nut butters, and then obviously you've got things like Beans and legumes and lentils, um, quinoa, farro, I could go on and on.
0: I should point out to you, you you have an anecdote in your book about your nickname when you were a kid, right? Your nickname was
1: Peanut. My nickname was Peanut. And so, yep, I guess it was in me all along. (laughs) And then go global. So many cultures are already doing this. I actually just got back from my friend's wedding. Her husband is Indian. Yeah, you might've seen I've got this um, henna on my hand. (laughs) But a lot of cultures are already doing this. And at their wedding reception, It was the most amazing food. And it was things like chana masala and rice and beautiful salads. And they even had pasta, all of which was uh, no animal products. Mm -hmm. So if you're not sure. Pop into, you know, a quote-unquote ethnic grocery store. Check out what they've got in the Indian store or the Mexican store, and it'll give you some new ideas.
0: Some popular recipes from the book, uh, things like ruby red roasted beet hummus, game day buffalo cauliflower, Cali green collard cake, which i, I got to say, the, the picture for that, that looks amazing. That's like a superhero cake. But what are some of your favorites?
1: Mm, the hummus is actually one of my favorites. So it's just what it sounds like, picture hummus, but a bright red. Um, Because so many chefs I've interviewed have said this, and I found it to be true. We eat with our eyes first. Mm -hmm. And so it's got to look good. The wonderful South Tampa photographer Chip Wiener photographed the food that's in this book.
0: That's a good name for a food photographer.
1: Chip, for sure. Chip Wiener, absolutely. He always says brown food is more difficult to photograph. So Mm -hmm. things like a steak are more challenging. I mean, when you're talking about all these beautiful fruits and vegetables, they just— catch your eye and so if you picture a plate of bright red hummus and you put some veggies around it like some yellow bell peppers and some broccoli and maybe some purple cauliflower and Mm -hmm. some orange carrots well now you're eating the rainbow which is good for you but more than that it looks good and it tastes good like who doesn't want to eat that Mm -hmm. um the buffalo cauliflower is also very popular it's kind of like my answer to a chicken wing it's sweet, it's spicy, it's got the, the panko breadcrumbs, and you just bite into it. I called it game day buffalo cauliflower, maybe if you're watching a football game or something, but really, you could have it anytime.
0: time. Mm-hmm. How do you go about researching and testing the recipes? And, you know, th- there's a lot about your family and friends in the book. How important are they in that
1: process? They're very important. I mean, during the photo shoot with all the food, I had to recreate all the food. I had a parade of neighbors coming out. I got a tip from a a chef a few years ago, Ed Steinhoff at the Strass Center. I don't think he's there anymore. But he said, if you want guests to help you clean up, then you need to provide to-go containers. Mm -hmm. And so for the shoot, I just, I texted my neighbors and I said, come on over. A few of my colleagues stopped over.
0: Bring your Tupperware.
1: And I I just provided those to-go containers, and and they made it all disappear. But I thought about what's in season. We're so fortunate here in Florida. Most of the year, we do have a lot growing, Mm -hmm. and... I had to sort of break it down for myself, and I don't know if you're a big spreadsheet guy, but you know, thank God for Google spreadsheets because I said, okay, it's going to be mango week this week. We're we're going to the market. We're getting mangoes, and how many things can we make with mangoes? We made mango salsa, mango French toast. You know what I mean? And then um, the collard greens. I really pushed myself. So yes, we've got the collard green cake, which. I took it to a party and people thought it was pistachio cake. It's that color green. But I just pureed some collard greens. I realized, and I don't know if you cook, but many of us have the same maybe five to 10 recipes Mm -hmm. in rotation. And we just make them over and over. It's pasta night. It's taco night. It's chicken night or whatever. And so when the publisher tells you, you need to have at least 120 recipes in this book, you dig a little deeper, and you come up with things like spaghetti squash alla norma, or spaghetti with beet balls, right? Yeah, or strawberry bruschetta on Cuban toast. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, not everything was a hit. And my husband Braulio, will tell you because he was the guinea pig who had to eat the ones that <laughs> didn't make the book. Like I really tried to think about what's in season in Florida in terms of fruits vegetables and herbs Mm -hmm. and also the different cultures that we could represent within florida in the latin community ropa vieja is big which is like a shredded meat dish and Mm -hmm. i thought well, how can i get that without the meat jackfruit jackfruit i don't know if you've seen one they're like the size of a watermelon and they've got these spikes it looks like a medieval torture device
0: yeah they're pretty amazing fruits yeah
1: cutting it up was a nightmare and then I put it in the my crock pot and I thought, okay, we're going to make jackfruit ropa vieja and it's going to be amazing and we're going to have it for dinner. That was a huge fail. It smelled horrible. <laughs> I could tell already that it wasn't going to work. So I ended up tossing it because I couldn't – who do I even give this to, you know? Mm-hmm. So I would say most of the recipes were salvageable, but there were some misses. But I know a lot of people who are – very much by the book Mm -hmm. in the kitchen. And if there's something in this book that you don't like, then change it, make it into something that you do like, and don't be afraid to fail. I would just encourage all the home cooks, You know, the person in the NBA with the most missed shots was Kobe Bryant. So that means he took a lot of shots. And so if you wanna get out of your weeknight rut, you gotta take a lot of shots.
0: It's clear from this book, too, that your your kids are really involved in cooking. What are some tips for parents to get their kids acclimated to cooking and kind of do it safely and also preserve your sanity?
1: Oh, my gosh. Tell me about it. You've got kids, right? Mm-hmm. How old are they?
0: They are 14 and 6.
1: Ooh, okay, you've got the whole spread. Mine are seven and 11, and then I've got my stepdaughter who's 24, so we also have a wide spread. But with mm-hmm. the younger kids, I definitely would say let them choose the recipe. So my daughter Nora's 11, and I would have her look on Pinterest. What do you wanna make tonight for dinner? And one night she wanted to make crepes. And I thought, well, that sounds like a lot of work, and that's not even a real food, and you know that's <laughs> not gonna fill us up. But nope, we went to the store, we got the ingredients, we made crepes, it took forever, it was a huge mess. And they tasted awesome. And she even said, you know, we like to do things the hard way around here. (laughs) You could buy grapes at the store, but we like to do things the hard way. Mm -hmm. So my first tip would be to let them choose the recipe. I do have a small little garden bed on the side of my house and they helped plant those veggies. So that's another tip is to get them involved in growing the food. I mean, what's better than picking a carrot and putting it into a salad? I mean, nothing tastes better than that. Mm -hmm. And then I've also learned a lot from friend of the pod, Wendy Wesley, who's a dietitian and nutritionist in St. Petersburg. One of her tips was make sure the kids can participate in cutting the food. So for older kids, like your 14-year-old or my 11-year-old, they can use a real knife it's probably safer to use a real knife than like a butter knife. And yeah. for younger kids, Wendy turned me on to these nylon knives. So now this mm-hmm. is one of my favorite gifts to give to little kids. They they kind of look like plastic, but you can cut things with them. So mm-hmm. my son helped me make a homemade tomato sauce because he was able to cut the tomatoes. Because if you think about it, if you're eating healthy-ish food, there's going to be a lot of cutting involved, yeah. right? It's a lot of chopping, it's a lot of onions and dicing things and garlic. And if you're not letting kids use knives, then they can't participate in any of that.
0: Yeah, it's like a foundational skill for a chef, isn't it? For sure. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and you're gonna cut yourself. I've cut myself plenty of times, but every chef I've talked to has cuts and burns, and that's just part of it.
0: Yeah. There's quite a lot of history in the book as well. Uh, along with the recipes, You you have kind of stories about, for example, the labor movement as it relates to tomatoes in Florida how do you get people to, you know, think about what they're buying, cooking and eating without turning them off?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Well, I guess you could start with growing some of it yourself. Um, and in Florida, there are so many roadside stands. And I realize that not all the food there comes from sure. comes from the side of the road. You might look at a lime and it might say it came from Mexico or the garlic came from China. But read the labels. You know, here in America, we have you know, food labels for a reason. And even if you're eating seafood or just leaning into a plant-based diet, read the labels and see where your fruit and vegetables and uh, even your meats are coming from. And we also have a lot of u picks here, which is super fun. So if you go to Plant City and pick your own strawberries, you know exactly where they came from.
0: Mm-hmm. There's... Lots of your personal stories we've kind of discussed in this cookbook, you've got anecdotes, you've got family photographs. Did you learn some things about yourself in the course of writing this?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think I learned that I like vegetables more than little Peanut D'Elia did. Mm -hmm. Because I was always the one in the family who had a reputation for being a picky eater and especially not liking vegetables. But I've learned there are so many ways to prepare these foods. That if you don't like boiled broccoli, try roasted broccoli with garlic, you know, and olive oil.
0: Delia Cologne, host of The Zest podcast from WUSF and author of The Florida Vegetarian Cookbook. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tune in to season nine of The Zest. It's streaming now. Find it wherever you get your podcast. That's our show for this week. Our executive producer is Grayson Doctor. The engineer for this episode is Blake Bass. You can subscribe to Florida Matters wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.